This Jane Fonda stuff just keeps going. Hard to believe that at age 82, she still has the ability to be so polarizing. Yeah, she got up in that North Vietnamese tank 48 years ago, and people are still angry about it. But the Kent State shootings have been controversial for 50 years, so I guess it's pretty appropriate that the 50th anniversary commemoration be steeped in controversy. Well, controversy is what fuels this podcast, so let's get started. It's This Week in the CLE, the podcast breakdown of the latest Northeast Ohio news by the region's deepest news team, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and I'm with co-host Laura Johnston, who is coordinating our content plans for the 50th anniversary of the Kent State shootings. How are you this week, Laura? I'm good. You know, we're still about two months, well, more than two months away from May 4th, and we've already had a ton of stories about it. So I think this is one that, you know, is still riveting people. I'm old, right? So I grew up in the era of Kent State and the activism of Jane Fonda. She's an amazing woman, someone who has had multiple turns with fame. There was her activism. There's her acting in movies like Coming Home and on Golden Pond. There was the entire aerobics craze she got rolling with her series of tapes, which I think might have started before you were born. (laughs) Um, Her years with Ted Turner. And here she is, 82, and she still gets into the center of our discussion. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, Kent State's playing Fonda $83,000 to speak on May 3rd. You know, Fonda's been in the news recently for protesting climate change week after week in Washington, D.C., but her Vietnam activity is probably still better known. She's long apologized for posing for those photos on the North Vietnam plane, but some people will always consider her a traitor, and that apparently includes Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who wants Kent to rescind their invitation. He says Fonda betrayed American soldiers. Yeah, I got an email just this morning from one of a person in our audience calling me a communist because I'm not condemning her in our other audio products. Doesn't it seem appropriate, though, that the 50th anniversary of the shootings is controversial? We have a student group protesting how the university put it together. We have the controversy over Jane Fonda. And if you're going to commemorate something like the Kent State shootings, which really brought about a sensitivity in the country about protests, shouldn't you do it in the spirit of that era with debate and protest? Yeah, I mean, it's right up, you know, the the tradition of Kent State. And I've spoken to one of the survivors who was really complimentary about the university stepping in to run the anniversary commemoration. It was a long time coming, taking decades for the school to embrace this aspect of its history. But current students now say the university has really closed out the public from planning and they want more of a say. So um, we're going to be seeing more about this, I think. And student activism is alive and well on the Kent campus. And now we've learned David Crosby will play there. You know, the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song, Ohio, brought this whole thing to an international stage. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I'm looking forward to the package you're coordinating. It's been interesting to listen to the reporters who are not born until years after Kent State talk, talk about what happened uh, in such wonder. Um, so, uh, it's time to bring in another woman who seems surrounded by controversy, Jane Cahoon. When you're the politics editor, controversy is your middle name. Welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thanks. So I haven't received one of these, but Chris says he's gotten texts from Michael Bloomberg's team. And what is that all about? Well, Chris is not the only one to have received a text from the Michael Bloomberg campaign. As you probably know, Bloomberg is investing all kinds of money in Super Tuesday states and also in Ohio where he's got a huge staff on the ground and has run TV commercials. But this is yet another way he's reaching out to voters. You uh, might have received 
uh, a text from somebody saying, hey, I'm so-and-so with Mike Bloomberg's campaign and, you know, we need somebody who can beat Donald Trump and Mike's that guy. Yeah, it's exactly what I got. How's that even legal? <laughs> I thought robo-texting was against the law. It's kind of annoying. Well, as Seth Richardson pointed out in his story about this, there there's always a workaround, right? So there's some app called Hustle that they use that auto-populates the text messages and the contact info, but then a human being has to actually hit the send button. A human being has to be on the one end of it for it to be legal. Okay, so someone sat there all day last weekend hitting a send button, and they tell you their name so you can text them back. Um, I'm wondering after the debate if a lot of people are going to be texting. <laughs> really oh, that's a good question. That's statement. a good question. But as I said, he's got a lot of paid staff, so I'm sure somebody was was paid well to sit there and hit that button, right? So, how does getting an annoying text like this make me want to vote for a candidate? Is there any evidence that this works, or is his goal? just to soak his name into our consciousness because he's such a late entry into the presidential race. Well, I'm, I'm sure it just ticked some people off to receive these texts, but there, there was actually some kind of study that was done that showed 1% of the people who received these direct texts actually turned out to vote, and that could make a difference in, in some races. But you're right, Chris, that I think they just want to plant the candidate's name in the voter's head, and maybe it'll make you go research that candidate more, find out more about him. So do you think this is our campaign future? Are other candidates going to be texting us? And how do they get our numbers? Is there a way to stop them <laughs> from doing it? This is our campaign present and future. Okay. Uh, he's not the only one doing this. I remember receiving some even a couple of years ago, but uh, yeah, the, if you have, uh, I, I think people don't realize how much personal information they've given people willingly, but maybe unwittingly, you know, if you have Facebook, if you have a credit card, if you play a certain game on your device, you know, there's all kinds of personal information that people give away and then it gets sold to marketers. I wonder if political candidates have finally realized that their traditional local television advertising is not money well spent. Only a couple of the presidential candidates have spent any money on TV advertising in Ohio so far, and we're less than five weeks from the primary. Um, Bloomberg is one of the candidates spending big on TV, but but as they as those traditional paths to reach voters slim down, TV audiences are shrinking. I wonder if this is more of a desperation measure. we got to figure out other ways to reach people. Bloomberg clearly knows <laughs> digital. The guy made all his money in it. Right. I don't know about desperation, but it certainly is another tool in the toolbox. And they really believe that engaging with voters this way could be effective. They even have like scripted responses. When people respond to them, they've got scripted responses that they that they send back. And, th and that's part of the goal is they want the engagement. They, they want, want a conversation. Even yes. if it's, hey, stop texting me, you bozo. <laughs> you're costing me money. Well, as I said, uh, they, they consider any kind of uh, recognition to be positive. Another topic. So we talked about this a bit previously, but Jeremy Peltzer in our State House Bureau drove it home this week with a story that asked a basic question. Why won't Governor Mike DeWine say whether he supports the death penalty? Correct. We asked him the question. So you don't have the once answer. Again. <laughs> His answer is the same answer he's given for a while now, and that is it is the law of the state of Ohio. 
And he really won't say why he doesn't want to reveal any more than that. I was glad Jeremy mentioned the governor's religious beliefs, though, because I do think that could be in play here. It's why the governor staunchly opposes abortion. He's very pro-life. And if he is pure in that belief, then he likely would oppose the death penalty. But because he's this conservative Republican, he just doesn't want to say it. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. He, He has given some hints saying things like, well, the death penalty is probably not the best way to protect the public. But then again, he also points to the fact that as a lawmaker, he voted for it. And as attorney general for eight years, he defended it. Yeah, but when, I mean, we, the, the closest we got him to to doing this was when he visited with our editorial board. And we said, you, you know, you, you're not talking about this, but you, you seem to be taking a position against it. And he made that coy little smile. And he says, well, nobody's being executed, right? And, I mean, and it was, there was a lot of message in those few words. Like, yes, I am not going to execute anybody. He just won't say it. And clearly, he hasn't had anybody executed. He keeps suspending them. Yeah. I mean, as a conservative Republican, though, he's taken steps as governor, showing an open mind on somewhat liberal causes like gun reform, the environment. But he's still a conservative Republican who very might well oppose the death penalty. And now some other conservatives are opposing the death penalty, correct? Yes, there's a new chapter of a group called Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty in Ohio. And they have uh, some heavyweights uh, on their side, like former Governor Bob Taft, uh, former Attorney General Jim Petro, former U.S. Rep. Pat Tiberi, and some Ohio lawmakers who say they hope that the legislature will consider abolishing the death penalty. Well, not going to happen <laughs> this year because Larry Abhoff is the Ohio Senate president, and he is dead set against getting rid of executions. Matt Huffman is the one that people talk about as the heir apparent. Do we know where he stands? Well, I suspect he's where Abhoff is. They, they say, you know, this should be, we should have this uh, for these very heinous crimes. Uh, interestingly, Huffman, several years back, sponsored some legislation that would have made it easier to acquire the execution drugs by, by putting a veil of secrecy over it, protecting the compounding pharmacies or whatever. I, I think it ran into some constitutional problems, but, but clearly he was somebody trying to preserve the death penalty. I wonder whether the pressure on DeWine's ultimately going to force him to state his position because it's not going to go away and people are just going to keep asking. <laughs> well, and stories like Jeremy's, I think, just invigorates the, the Columbus press corps to say, yeah, what what is your position? Well, don't underestimate Mike DeWine. He is really good at keeping things close to the vest. If he doesn't want to talk about something, he doesn't. Okay. <laughs> we had a couple of interesting stories in the past week about a Democrat who is challenging Republican Dave Joyce for Congress. The first was about a formal complaint filed with the Attorney General that she voted twice in the same election. The second was about evidence that seems to refute that first one. Let's start with the first story. The first one was that the Ohio Republican Party dug up records that indicated that the candidate, Hillary O'Connor Murray, voted twice in the 2008, um, I'm sorry, presidential primary. And so they went to the attorney general and filed a complaint accusing her of that. And the Democratic candidate was pretty upset about this, but the complaint was a notarized 
formal submission to the attorney general, correct? I mean, they had documentation. It was a formal complaint submitted to the attorney general who said he, his, he was reviewing it. And it was also sent to Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who weighed in with some fairly strong comments uh, about being concerned about what these records showed. And the complaint included records that seemed to back up that claim. Yes, there was uh, the Lake County Board of Elections produced a certified record of her voting history that said she voted. And in addition to that, in response to the GOP's public records request, there was an, an email from somebody in the Lake County Prosecutor's Office representing the county that was handling this records request saying, here's what these little notations on the record mean that she voted in this election, that election, et cetera. And it also said there aren't any other records responsive to your request about this. We don't have any envelopes or other stuff to enhance this record of her voting history. Okay, step two. The next day, the Democrats came out with evidence that the candidate had not voted twice. So what did they have? So the next day, late in the day, the Lake County Board of Elections issued a statement saying that they had actually verified that she did not vote. And the way they explained this was to say that back in 2008, the way they recorded someone's voting history is that... uh, if even if you didn't return your absentee ballot, like if you got a ballot but didn't return it, they counted you as having voted. So they this statement refuted not only the GOP's allegation, but their own certified record that they had issued. Well, it also puts in the question everything they've ever told us about voter turnout, because if you're marking people <laughs> who vote who didn't, it's it's just not true. But 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 that actually is kind of a staggering thing that they have a form that has a box or something that says this person voted. And their interpretation of that now is, no, 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 they didn't vote. Even though it says they said they voted, it just means they pulled the ballot. I and mean, I wonder if the Secretary of State is going to be upset about that kind of record keeping. This is official election records. The, the board said they had since changed their policy and they don't do that anymore. But, you know, Frank LaRose hasn't really weighed in on this, but you have to suspect that maybe he's embarrassed about this erroneous record keeping. But I I was just recalling back during the the problems that were uncovered on the voter purge, where he was expressing concern that we have more uniformity or maybe some centralized, you know, operations for elections. And, you know, this sort of seems like it uncovers another flaw that where you'd want uniform record keeping. Well, I didn't even think about the voter purge. I mean, the voter purge is based on you not voting in a bunch of elections. And so Lake County's marking you as voted. (laughs) I guess you don't get purged. Yeah, maybe that's that was a way to protect yourself against the purge, right? Interesting. Okay, so let's go back to Mike DeWine. He has a new plan to end distracted driving. Yes, he is behind a bill that would make distracted driving a primary offense, meaning if they saw you doing it, they could pull you over just for that. The way it works now is you have to be pulled over for something else. They they also would prohibit you from even holding an electronic device. I mean, there are some exceptions, like if you have to call 911 or things like that. But it, it also would 
if for the first six months you'd get a warning and then they'd start citing you and it would escalate like if you were caught doing this multiple times you know the 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 offense would get more serious look though i mean anyone who drives knows that whatever we're doing now about distracted driving it's not working you see it all the time i'm on the ohio turnpike a good bit and truckers on that road weave all over the place and when you get up next to them you see they're looking at their ipads <laughs> it's really kind of scary yes. um but will this change that i mean it's it's if people hold their devices below where police can see them you know police won't be able to pull them over and and you haven't seen any change in people's behavior. People are using their devices in their cars all the time. It seems like the real solution might be self-driving cars where the people aren't behind the wheel. Why does Mike DeWine think this will work? He, he wants to see a culture change on this, and he firmly believes this will save lives. He could always get behind the death penalty for people who drive <laughs> while distracted. That is not funny, Chris. <laughs> Okay, thanks for visiting with us, Jane. Sure thing. Next up, we'll talk with Adam Faris about a giant hole in Cuyahoga County's police record system. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Hi, Laura. So your watchdog story this week on police records is a great one. I can't believe the law enforcement of this community got behind a countywide effort that took millions of dollars and several years worth of work to centralize police records to help spot trends and solve crimes. And then... The records have a gaping hole. Actually, I can't believe it because this is guy out Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, it's just done with the you know the best intentions and something that is so easily done with digital records now that can help so many police officers and detectives to solve crimes across the county. And um, finally got going, but who's missing? Cleveland. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about what this system is and what it's supposed to do. We beat up on County Executive Armin Budish quite a bit for all the goofs of his administration, but this is one of his very good ideas. I mean, he came up with an idea to, to, to fix something that was broken, and he took the leadership role. So, so how is this supposed to work, and, and what, was, what was in existence before this system was created? Nothing was in existence before this. Um, so every police department kept its own records and nobody really shared them. Right. You, if you needed one, you basically had to pick up a phone and hope somebody could email you what you were looking for. Um, and you had to be really specific about it, too. Um, so this system, uh, anytime a police report's entered, it automatically feeds into this system. And the officers um, who are, say, looking up uh, Chris Quinn to see where he lives or his other contacts with police, all they got to do is, is put your name in and all of it comes up from all over the county um, so they can see, you know, but, if but, somebody's... But if there's, say say there's a burglary at my house where they break a window and, and, and come in through the back, is there does this system allow me then to go in into a geographic area and say how many burglaries are there where they break a window and come in through the back? Th that you can do that. You yeah. can start to spot the trends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, suspect information. Uh, you know, if somebody people wearing red hoodies are robbing dollar stores in Parma, then if there's one in Middleburg Heights, then you know they can put that together by just searching and get it instantly instead of having to wait you know, a couple of hours or a couple of days. But Cleveland has a ton of crime. And and so if they're you know, in a lot of cities border Cleveland, and so if in my neck of the woods, because I live in Cleveland Heights, there are some burglaries that I'm trying to do intelligence on, 
and they cross the border, I can't find that out, right? Because Cleveland's not there. Right. I mean, not not through the database. You could call and hope somebody gets back. But no, uh, biggest, uh, obviously, I mean, how many stories do we do where there's crimes in the suburbs and then it bleeds into the oh, into Cleveland? Yeah. All, all, all the time. 90%. Um, so that I think that really hurts the chances of, uh, and, and a lot of people that I talk to, that just really hurts the chance of. But here's the best part. That Cleveland wants access to the system. They want to use it for their purposes, but not contribute to it. Yeah, they ask for a license plate, the license plate reader part of it. So clearly, they consider this to be a worthy, helpful system. But yeah. So is Cleveland sitting out because they don't want people to know how bad crime is? Or are they not capable of giving away the information? Are they afraid of not having full control over crime, crime reports? I mean... Does Cleveland have the competence to contribute to this new system? Uh, I, I don't know why they're doing it. They, they sent over a canned statement that said nothing. Uh, the people <laughs> I, I, I talked to, um, you know, the, the I guess their opinions on possible explanations is, yeah, they don't, they don't, maybe they don't want people to see exactly how much crime they have. Maybe they don't want to see the type of investigations they're doing on certain things or whatever, but... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't have a good. Look, I'm not surprised you got a, a a statement that says nothing. They can't say they can't afford it because Armand Booters would give them the money, and they know it. So they can't say they don't want people to know how bad crime is because then they'd be admitting that they're misleading people on the level of crime. Uh, Frank Jackson has a long history of of you know believing that the city should own its stuff, so he's going to resist anybody else having the ability to share to share their things um you know it's it's one of those where you wonder if the way forward here is to inject this into the next mayor's race which is next year that that the way to to force the city into this is to ask the candidates running if they will make this a priority because absent that this isn't going to happen. I mean, nobody at the city said to you, we want to do this, but they they just said they're not doing it, right? Yep. Um, and that's a, th- yeah, I think you could. I mean, uh, any mayor's race in Cleveland is going to touch on public safety. That's one, literally, all they have to do is say yes. They sign an MOU. The county takes care of 100% of the cost, the maintenance. That's it. You don't have to do anything. So it's something that a mayor could do on day one or the current mayor could do tomorrow (laughs) so is there a building that houses this system or is it an office or just a bunch of county computer servers it's in the chagrin valley dispatch center Mm -hmm. um but it's like the interfaces where you can search all of this stuff it's distributed to all the police departments and the you know it's like um in the cars and the cruisers you can access it on your phone if you have the interface so and the fbi has it the state has it yeah it's a big deal so there's a long history in in this county of computer systems not talking to each other. That's why this was such a groundbreaking thing. I really do have to salute Budish for it because this wouldn't happen without him. But there's also a history of the prosecutor's computers not talking to the court computers. I remember the time, I don't know if it's still like this, where the prosecutor's office would have an indictment that they put up on their computer, and to get it into the court computer, they had to print it out, take it over to data entry clerks, and they would type it in because the judges did not want people being able to analyze the, the how they process their cases they were being very secretive 
So is there any talk of now that we've made this big, dramatic step of connecting it all? I mean, it would make so much sense if the, the crime reports were in the same computer with the prosecutions and in the same computer with the resolutions in court. I would imagine for intelligence purposes, that would be really handy. You could see accomplices and all sorts of things. Has anybody talked about anything like that? No, I, I haven't heard anything like that, but I think you get a lot of that. I mean, it, it would help with the court records, but a lot of that stuff is pretty accessible as it is. And I think the police reports, I mean, you're getting very detailed data on the kind of stuff you were talking about anyway. Um, but yeah, no, the clerk's office and the prosecutor's office, I mean, that's been, uh, they haven't talked those, they haven't figured out a way to, to connect those. And it was one of the, I think that was one of the reasons why they released an uh, inmate last year when they were accidentally releasing all those inmates. So well, and it's not for the lack of trying. When Bill Mason was the county prosecutor, he worked really hard to try and get those systems tied together. The judges just wouldn't have it. And, and you know, it's partly because some of the judges don't work real hard, and they don't want anybody to know that. I would think that the bulk of the judges who do work really hard would want people to know that because it brings down the reputation of all of them, but it's been a, it's been a bad system for a long time. Well, we can dream. And in the meantime, Adam, you had a great story, and we'll see if it pressures Cleveland into doing the right thing. Yeah, good. Yeah, real chance of that. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, Cuyahoga County Council is steamed. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney. Hello. So sometimes it's the little things, Courtney, that become big things. You had a story this week that was not huge in the grand scheme of things, but it is so telling. It was about the county council feeling disrespected by the administration of Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish. Take us through that. Yeah, so yesterday there was the first and what could have been the only hearing on the first round of opioid money that the county won in settlements with opioid manufacturers. The whole country is kind of looking to Cuyahoga and Summit County to see what they're going to do with this money. The county rolled out what both the administration and council believes is a solid plan for the first batch of $23 million. But yesterday was kind of the point where there was going to be the one chance of, of public discussion about the use of these funds. And, you know, we were all in the room. Council's waiting for everything to start. And no one from the administration showed up to talk about this package. Um, The meeting started 15 minutes late. They had to call in the budget director at the last minute, who just kind of had to fill in until the special operations chief, Brandy Carney, who was, you know, hired to specifically oversee these opioid funds a couple months ago. At $130,000 a year. Correct. Um, She got there late. She said she ran out of gas and, you know, had problems getting to the meeting. But I think... The big takeaway here was this was a very important conversation for very important programs for a very important batch of money. And it just felt like maybe the preparation wasn't there on the administration side. So in a, a lot of governments, this might have been a little bit of a blip. Stuff happens. Sometimes people run out of, ga- run out of gas. But because of the number of screw ups by this administration and some of the communication issues, council's patience is really thin. And so this became a big thing. Yeah, and and council, Dan Brady in particular, and council staff did a lot of the legwork in figuring out which programs are going to be funded by this money. So I think, you know, they were going into it, taking it seriously. And not that the administration isn't taking it seriously, but that's the moment where you kind of have your stuff together. And it sounds like they were just 
expecting Brandy to answer questions. It's not like they came with like a whole team that could have given details about this stuff, right? I mean, if we have a budget director filling in, then they weren't like, here's all of our PowerPoints and like, you know, stuff. Right. And if you compare it to the day before where there was a hearing about Sherwin-Williams, which is several million dollars, that incentive package there is several million dollars less than the opioid fund. Mm -hmm. The room was packed and everyone in and the administration in Sherwin-Williams was there. But mm -hmm. but for this opioid money, the next day it was like, okay, although, well. Although there's a difference there. When you're giving money to a corporation, sure. there's a bit more scrutiny. But, but look, the, the, this is interesting because... People run out of gas sometimes. People have flat tires sometimes. I mean, that that is life. I mean, sure. th th you you know, th it's not some. She could have been delayed for any number of reasons. Um, I mean, you could argue that the minute she was delayed, Armand Buda should have marched down there, or Bill Mason should have marched down there as chief of staff to to answer the question. So there is that level of disrespect. But but I it seems like it's more of a. This administration constantly puts council into a difficult spot. Every time the administration does something that we think makes no sense, which is a lot, we go to Dan Brady and say, hey, man, what are you going to do about this? That's not a comfortable position that to constantly be in in his in his in his role. You know, he probably wants to just conduct the county's business and not keep answering for what's going on over there. So so the sense of annoyance that you saw would normally seem out of proportion, right? I mean, she ran out of gas. She was late. Big deal. But they're sick of this. I mean, it's they're clearly tired of the way this administration doesn't sweat the small stuff. I was just going to say that there is so much frustration. I've been at the county for almost two years now, and council wants to see attention to the little details and, and a sense of... So do we. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a handle on it. We've We've... We've got our arms around this. And, and that's the design of the administration. They are supposed to come up with the plans and council is supposed to be the oversight body. I mean, right. they're not supposed to be the detail oriented. They don't oversee the departments. That's not their job. Their job is to oversee the budget. And that's what I kind of found interesting in some of the comments yesterday, you know, in 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 Brandy's, you know, absence while everyone was waiting to get situated. They had a member of council staff come up and he had basically said, you know, almost 80% or so of the programs that this opioid package is going to be funding were put together and figured out by council well, and, and not know, the executive side of the we've house. We've given council over the years, because, you know, I used to cover county, we've given them a, a lot of scrutiny over how much they've been paid, how big their staffs are, and saying they were supposed to be a part-time job. But y you can see why they feel like the way it's working now is they are full-time and they're doing a lot of the work that it's not what the charter had originally envisioned. I think that's the Sunshine Council side as well. All right, we're going to beat up on council in a minute for a different story. <laughs> but before we do that, we need to give the council, and more particularly Council President Dan Brady, some points for another story. Dan Brady won't sign off on that $14 million incentive package for Sherwin-Williams' new headquarters just yet. Why not? Yeah, so... Council and the administration, everyone's all excited about this incentive package. Everybody is so pleased that Sherwin-Williams is going to stay here. So this isn't about whether we want to offer to Sherwin-Williams, but they're not going to move on a vote for this incentive package until they know the details of what the state's offering, what the city of Cleveland's offering, and, you know, Brexville's offering. So council doesn't want to move forward until they see how their piece of the pie 
falls into place with the other public incentives. I mean, that seems fair to me. Why should county taxpayers go all in before knowing what other governments are contributing? Um, it doesn't sound like Dan Brady was combative about this particular issue. He was just very matter of fact. Yeah. Like I said, they're all about the package. They just want some transparency before they sign off on it. Yeah, there's no, I mean, we should make clear, there's no issue about the incentive. Mm -hmm. Council's going to sign off on this. They just, they want everybody in before they do. Yeah, and Cuyahoga County was kind of in an awkward place because their incentive package was made public first. So you got to wait till details start to come out from the other sides. So we did learn about the government's incentives in Brexville, where they're going to be part of a mixed-use development on the grounds of the old VA hospital. Do you know what they're going to offer in exchange for Sherwin-Williams building their research center there? Yeah, so there are a couple different pieces to the Brexville package. And, you know, part of that is going to be an income tax rebate um, for 15 years. Uh, in the Plain Dealers reporting, they put together some conservative estimates this week of what that could be worth. And um, the math there was, you know, about $6 million, but probably more depending on how many jobs are generated. There's also, you know, a proposed um tax increment financing on on property taxes for this facility that would be for a 30-year period and again conservative estimates there um pegged it at about perhaps 90 million dollars wow so the county the county package looks a lot smaller yeah and we knew going in that the county slice of the pie was much smaller armin budish is tight with a buck we have a story to close. <laughs> he is. He's very. He's he guards the county budget zealously. I mean, it's. it's I mean, every every government in Cuyahoga County complains about it, and and they complain to us. And my reaction is always, "What you think we should we should criticize somebody for guarding the taxpayer dollars zealously? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do." So. Um, more power to them. We have a story to close the loop on. We started talking about the Cuyahoga County jail system nearly two years ago when people started dying there and inspectors ultimately found all sorts of inhumane conditions and safety issues. Through that process, the county learned that a satellite jail in Euclid has a much smaller capacity than thought and the decision was made to close it. Finally, that has happened. Yes. As of January 31st, that was the last day the county was operating the Euclid jail. Last day prisoners were out there. They don't have to pay to run that facility now, which means those resources, those inmates and those guards can come back downtown. Good news. So when the county took over the jail, they thought it could hold what, like 88 people? What was the actual capacity? I think somewhere around like 32. So it was it can hold far fewer inmates than they understood that it could hold when they got into it. But, you know, I will say when that deal was made in 2014, I don't know if there was as much of a keen eye on are we hitting these state guidelines for space restrictions, those kinds of things. After all this reporting on the jail and the the discussion is turned to the jail, people are looking at details now. So that just, I guess, slipped under the radar back then. You reported last year that the jail population in the main downtown jail, through the county's careful efforts, had finally been brought under capacity for the first time, I think it was in decades. Um, I've heard it's gone back up uh, a bit over capacity. Did the closing of the Euclid jail contribute to that? I'm going to say not really. When they closed the Euclid jail down, there were the last day it was open, there were nine inmates there. Um, in the last month it was open, there were no more than like 17 there at the um, time. Um, the jail capacity did climb, you know, about a week and ago, a week 
and a half ago. The population was at about 1,900, and the capacity is, you know, that's more than 100 over capacity. But, you know, the county told me that this time of the year, there's a historic bump in the jail population after the holidays and as the cold weather continues to hit. You know, part of that could be an issue that we've heard a lot about, which is the homeless population or other populations coming into the facility. I mean, I'm, I can't attribute it all to that, but they said there's been a historic spike. Hmm. Okay, we have two county stories to discuss about fiscal responsibility. The county was criticized for some major accounting flaws in the latest uh, state audit. And I guess there's no avoiding using the term central to the story, material weakness. I will just try to stop from saying stakeholder or thought leader. <laughs> I hate those terms, right? <laughs> so do our editors. <laughs> yeah, so this year's, or the 2018 audit came out in the past few days and you know, I will say there were there were findings for recovery last year and last year's audit. And that means to get money back. Yeah, which is a big deal when you're looking at this. There was nothing like that this year, but you know, the state did find what they call these material weaknesses. And the one the one I found most interesting um, was that there was um, they call it like the book to bank balance was off. What was on the county's books in a certain fund didn't line up to what was in their bank account. There was. That's pretty big. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. What uh, are they, the Lake County Board of Elections? Oh, jeez. <laughs> there was one fund, the Sanitary Engineers Fund, that was off by $1.7 million. So not, not peanuts. And there were several other, you know, issues that they found with their reporting requirements related to federal programs like food stamps and Medicaid and, and those So material things. weakness is a more serious of the kinds of critical findings, right? It means that there is a risk to that money going missing. Yeah, it means that the county's internal controls, when they're looking at their own records and their own money, it means that there's a chance for their own process to not catch errors or problems. All right, speaking of risk, the county council adopted a policy to allow workers to receive extra money for work beyond their normal duties. They call it premium pay. But an independent review committee said the policy poses some serious risks. So start with what this policy is. Yeah, premium pay is in some cases a percentage, in some cases a, a not defined number offered to some employees for things like a special certification that the county needs to do a task that the county has to do. Or um, it applies to employees who are bilingual and use that language to communicate and help the public for a good chunk of their work hours. And also for some employees who are on call and have to remain on call and within a certain amount of distance from wherever they would need to report to if there's a problem and they have to go in. So for the certification premium pay and for the bilingual premium pay, there are kind of set rules governing how much workers can get if they fulfill those roles. With the on-call piece of things, it's kind. there's no defined way to determine how much money the county is going to be paying. And the Personnel Review Commission, an oversight body that's supposed to look at these policies, flagged that and, and said, you know, there could be a potential for abuse there. Okay, so what is the risk? So I talked to the commissioner uh, of this oversight body, and he said any time that there aren't essentially strict guidelines for determining these type of incentives, it could open the county up to, you know, a manager could 
give his buddy that on-call shift that weekend mm. and or maybe not give someone he doesn't like that on-call shift. You know, the county has told me this is premium pay only goes to a few dozen employees. So this isn't a big issue. Uh, affecting a lot of the county employees. But is it next year's material weakness in the audit? Well, and the county the county would say these new rules were meant to tighten up premium pay that were less defined in the county's old rules. So the county's saying this is more guardrails so on it. So it's been going on. This premium pay has been going on. We just didn't have like a policy to follow? There was a very vague policy. It didn't outline the specific certification bilingual mm. skills on call. So, I mean, in that case, I... I get that argument. This is tightening up the rule, but the the commissioner is saying not enough. Okay, so they'll they'll fix it if they if it gets abused in the future. There's no plan to fix this now. No, because council last week uh, approved this change in the handbook, okay. along with several other changes to the employee handbook. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for coming by, Courtney. I'm so glad you didn't run out of gas on your way here. <laughs> Corey Schaefer is up next. He has a couple of unusual court stories to talk about. It's This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Hello. So a NASA researcher attacks on Buddhism, a tragic death of an innocent man, jaw-dropping mental health breakdown. It was all in one really unusual story this week out of Cuyahoga County Court. So can you start us with the basics? Who was in court and who did he kill? So this was a guy named Thomas Hawkins. He also went by the first name Hunt Hawkins. Um, he was a naval uh, officer, started 2006, worked there till 2016. He was on a nuclear submarine, um, and then he left in 2016. Uh, Navy doesn't say why. I'm not exactly sure why. Took a job with NASA over at Glenn Research Center as a microgravity researcher on the International Space Station. Uh, so we can he, say he's a rocket scientist in some way? In some way, in yeah, some way. I think so. Um yeah, clearly, I mean, he's a super bright guy. Um, he ended up in court because he seemed to be going through some mental stuff, uh, drank uh, half a bottle of whiskey, got behind a car, was in, you know, crisis mode pretty much, was trying to, his attorney says he was trying to drive to uh, the hospital he knew, which was the clinic, uh, the Cleveland Clinic, left his home in Solon and ended up uh, crashing on the way. At 70 miles an hour. 70 miles an hour in Cleveland Heights at Mayfield and Taylor uh, intersection there um, and killed a 65-year-old gentleman um, by the name of Eugene Rankin Jr. who was just, he worked late rehabbing a house. He had retired but was taking on like a, this other job to stay busy. Um, on his way home, working late, his wife said he hardly ever did that and was driving through the intersection with the green light when Hawkins' truck hit him and the collision killed him. What makes this so odd beyond the the wackiness of this guy's mind, we'll talk about in a minute, is the recklessness of it. I mean, this is a guy who had a really high-level job and he just went into a full-out mental health tailspin. I mean, it makes you wonder how many crimes are really the result of mental health issues. I mean, he got drunk on what he called high high level high quality whiskey the and, good stuff and is what he said floored it in a zone that i think is 25 i think at that it's either 35 or 25 yeah and these yeah. are not major yeah. highways no no not i mean these these are these are residential and the black box showed that his foot was on the floor in that i mean it's just yeah. 
what you know what what's going on there i mean so talk a little bit about his mental stress yeah so uh again you know it's it's not entirely i'm sure it'll come out they're going to do some examinations and stuff before the sentencing which is next month um but he seemed to be going through um you know i don't know if there was a ptsd situation with anything he did in the navy or what it was but it seemed like a, a months-long kind of thing that summer. Um, he, there was a, another researcher who uh, is from uh, Myanmar, Burma, and did research with the International Space Station as well on liquid crystals. And, um, you know, f- the, the mental illness that, that Mr. Hawkins was going through took him into some place where he thought that the researcher was using the liquid crystals to control people's minds. Uh, and the other researcher was a Buddhist, which played he was big a, into yeah, this. Yeah, he was a Buddhist, and so there was some uh, some emails, which is, uh, this is the reason why he got suspended from NASA and ultimately uh, lost his job last month, but he sent some emails um, in which he, he made comments about the Buddhist religion being, uh, I think he said, a poverty-stricken religion, um, and said some things about, you know, using nuclear weapons on uh, Buddhist countries in India to take back that stuff, to take back the land and the resources. And uh, clearly when they found this out, they suspended him. And and so, but after he was suspended for what he said about Buddhists, he actually drove to Illinois and did surveillance on a Buddhist temple where his coworker attended. I mean did what did he do there was he was he trying to do uh well his attorney says he was he wasn't clearly wasn't trying to hurt anybody i mean there's been no evidence that he had any sort of weapon with him or anything like that oh but man that's really odd it's y- but yeah, he did have it, it weapons it speaks to, to in his home right in his home he did yeah so it i mean it just speaks to the the mental state that this guy was in and he so said, he drove there he drove to springfield where this uh where this temple was to do surveillance, to surveil his coworker. And he said, you know, police inter- interviewed him later and he said, you know, I had some good thoughts and some bad thoughts while I was there. And, and this apparently lasted for hours. He sat out there, but there was, you know, I, I don't think he ever explained what the bad thoughts were, if they were actually physical or if he was just in a bad state of mind. So clearly he, he went kablooey. I mean, this is not normal behavior. There's definitely mental health issues here gets drunk, kills Eugene Rankin. And, you know, we often talk about the criminals because they're the ones that get arrested and go away. But let's talk about the victim and your story. He really sounded like a great guy. Yeah, so there were family members there uh, when he pled guilty um, on Tuesday of this week. So I talked to them afterwards. And, and, I mean, obviously, you know, they just had great things to say about him. He was uh, father, uncle, grandfather, grandfather. loving husband his his wife they'd been together for 30 years they'd only been married for 15 but his wife had uh been diagnosed with ms and he was taking care of her at the same time that he was rehabbing houses to try to you know stay busy and get some extra cash um one gentleman that really struck me was his nephew otis rogers jr who's quoted in the article um you know he's very sharp dressed man he was in a three-piece suit uh, with a felt fedora with a little feather in it, and he was he was walking with a cane. He himself is a, a veteran, um, and he's he's 52, and he said he's retired because, you know, his uncle Eugene Rankin, who went by the name Butch, 
taught him at a young age, like got him involved in wrestling, got him involved in, um, ended up, uh, inspiring him to join the military himself. And so that gave him a career that he wouldn't have otherwise had because he, you know, Otis was in an orphanage when he was little, his grandparents ended up taking care of him. And that's how he became so close with Butch is you, Otis's grandparents are Butch's parents. So he's, you know, his nephew. And, and he said, you know, you don't know the type of uh, seeds you plant in somebody until later on when you watch them grow. And I mean, he was, this guy was weeping. He's a big guy. He's a wrestler. So, you know, he's a very wow. stout guy and he was just weeping outside mm. the courtroom. So Eugene Rankin is dead. His family is devastated. How long will Hawkins be in prison? Uh, so it's a mandatory prison time. So he has to go to prison. Uh, the minimum is two years and the maximum is 11. I would be surprised. He has no criminal history. It seems like mental health was a big part of this. So I would be surprised if the judge, Michael Shaughnessy, gives him the maximum. Um, but it'll be anywhere from 2 to 11. You write a lot about tragedy, Corey, and this next story starts with one. A woman who was raped as a child is trying to blow apart Ohio's tort reform law so that other people who were abused as children can get proper compensation. Let's start with tort reform. What's the issue with it? Uh, so basically what this means is a tort is a lawsuit. So that's that's what the word tort means, general general tort. Uh, is your personal injury lawsuit. You get in a car accident, you sue somebody. Um, the the laws that Ohio has in place uh, cap. It, it's specific to specific situations. For pain, but, but pain and suffering. Pain and suffering, yeah. It's, so it's non-monetary damages. So, you know, if you go to a hospital, your hospital bill is a monetary damage. You can show this is what this cost me. Um, pain and suffering has always been, you know, how do you quantify that? So the legislature placed these caps on on the amount of money that you can win from that. And at what is it, a quarter of a million? Two hundred fifty thousand. Sometimes it's five hundred thousand, depending on the circumstances. But I don't think it ever really goes over five hundred thousand. Okay, so in this case, the jury thought a lot more was owed. Correct. So this, uh, you know, uh, Amanda Brandt was a victim of. It was a very high-profile case back in 2005, 2006. Uh, I think he ended up getting sentenced in 2007. Roy Pompa, Brooke Park, um, was molesting girls during sleepovers at his his daughter's friends. Um, and she, you know, obviously he went to prison. He's serving like 450-some years sentence, so he's obviously never getting out. Yeah, this was a big case. Yeah, so she... Um, went to an attorney, filed a lawsuit, you know, she's, she sued a rapist, which is, it takes a lot of guts to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the jury ended up coming back with a, uh, between therapy, you know, the, all the, the total, actual, all cost. the actual costs and, um, pain and suffering and punitive damages. Well, the total award was $134 million. Wow. But what was the pain and suffering part? Uh, it was $20 million. So after that verdict, the judge, the, uh, the, the rapist's lawyer said, you know, Ohio's tort reform laws, you should reduce this $20 million down to $250,000. Judge cited those laws and said, you know, the lo- those laws apply to this specific part of this loss of this jury verdict. So, um, she reduced it by $20 million. So the abuser's in prison. She's never going to get this money anyway. What is this really about? 
this is about for them challenging the constitutionality of these laws because they they feel that it's unjust they feel that uh you know for future victims be, because there was still a 134 million dollar award it was knocked down to 114 million dollars mm-hmm. you know that might not seem like that big of a difference but you know a big part of that is because a lot of her abuse happened before the tort reforms took effect in 2005 uh, so the two, the 20 million dollars was for the oh it's only for the pain and suffering since the tort reform yes. so she got she got full money for the pain and suffering before tort before reform before the tort oh, reforms I took effect that. So, yeah, so after, so for the abuse that happened after, so she was actually being abused while this law was passing. Mm. So, so for somebody abused since 2000. After that, they, they, would, would, have, they would get $250,000 capped. So, but tort reform, the law, wasn't really aimed at rape, right? I mean, it was aimed more at protecting doctors and reducing malpractice awards. So is this, is, is that intent going to have any effect on her case and her ability to challenge the law? So that's actually, that was, you know, when you talk about tort reform, everybody remembers, I remember from the 2008 presidential election, you know, that was a big deal. That was the GOP argument for reducing healthcare costs was passing tort reform so that will lower the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the cost for hospitals and they can reduce their costs for people too. But it turns out that that wasn't just for medical malpractice lawsuits. That was for, there was also a separate tort reform at the same time, in the same set of bills that applied to all general torts, so all lawsuits, all personal injury, non-monetary damage kind of lawsuits. Uh, And from talking with uh, Ms. Brandt's attorney, John Fitch, Ohio is one of a handful of states that actually have that, that that the, Mm. the separate tort reform for general torts in addition to the medical malpractice. I think he said there might be nine states in, in the country that have that. Um, states like Texas, you know, more conservative states in Ohio don't have that. Okay. So they're they're trying to convince a court to overturn based on based on that. All right. Well, thanks for coming in, Corey. You're finding some enlightening stories in the courthouse. Keep them coming. Thank you. Next up, Cleveland.com's Jane Maurice tells us what's behind her makeup videos. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thanks, guys. Jane, you do a lot around here. You're a social media specialist with a special knack for knowing what resonates with our audience. You cover crime some, but you added something to the roster a while back. You created a series of videos about women's makeup. You take people through putting it on and the effects it has, and you use yourself as a model. So talk a bit about what gave you the interest in doing this. Sure. So when I started here at Cleveland.com almost five years ago now, um, I was working the 3 to 11 crime shift. And so that included every Friday and Saturday night also. (laughs) So let's just say I didn't really have much of a social life, Um, whether it was, you know, after work, you know, trying to wind down after a shift or during my free time on the weekends. I can't really tell you what drew me into makeup itself, but I started watching a lot of YouTube and then maybe it was suggested videos. Like I said, I don't really remember exactly, but makeup just kind of drew me in and you know, here we are three or four years later and it's my biggest passion outside of work. Um, It's something that I spend a lot of time on, whether I'm experimenting with new things on my own face. Um, Occasionally I do other people's makeup. I've done my best friend's makeup for her wedding. I've done prom makeup, you know, that sort of thing. So it's really kind of grown over the past several years from just watching YouTube and admiring onto 
you know, I can do it on other people and I love to do it on myself. Well, cool. I mean, I, I love your conversational tone when, um, when you do the videos and the beginning, I think your one minute like intro, you explain like what you're going to do. And then I just watched your Valentine's Day, yes. pretty in pink. And I love that there's a <laughs> pink background, but yes. like you're talking to the audience. You're like, oh, I have some lip gloss on my teeth. Like it's not like the super, I mean, it's polished, but it's not unattainable. And I think that's probably what resonates with people. Right. And that's what I, my goal is. That's kind of what I wanted. I I watch so much still. It's kind of like I was saying, my main hobby outside of work. Like I don't watch reality TV. I watch YouTube videos. I have women that I like to watch on YouTube. And so I try to kind of emulate the best or the most attractive things about those videos Mm -hmm. in my own. And what I think is most effective is to kind of draw them in and make it look like I'm a real person. I'm Mm -hmm. not just um, someone who's, you know, doing this and edits out all of the bad stuff or all the mistakes. I like to have it conversational because I I want to be able to relate to the people who are watching my videos. So I got to say, from my perspective, I don't really like makeup. Like I'm kind of terrible at it. I don't understand what kind of eyeshadow I'm supposed to be wearing if it's supposed to match my skin tone or my shirt. Um, My mom never wore makeup growing up, so I never had anyone to like teach me. I don't have an older sibling. Um, but so what is it about makeup that you like? Like why, why is this a hobby of yours? So I don't really know, like I said, where it like just came to me. I've been wearing makeup since high school. Um, it's not like my mom is the most, you know, glamorous movie star comes to like wears makeup constantly sort of person either. But, you know, she always, um, really, drilled into me to be presentable Mm -hmm. and so I started wearing some makeup in high school started to dabble with it the older I got um but I I I don't know I I really don't know how to describe it I think the way that I like to think of it is I read an article a couple of years ago I don't even remember where I read it but what resonated with me is when people say makeup is your meditation makeup Mm -hmm. is my morning meditation it is the time I take to myself by myself, no distractions. I take time for myself. How much time do, um, do you do it? Well, it depends. Like, okay, so I'm not wearing a full face of makeup right now. I know we're not on camera. You can't see me, <laughs> but you can hear me. But and you I'm look telling totally you. presentable in case your and, mom is, li- is listening. <laughs> right. She looks totally presentable. Well, so that's what I actually did a video very similar to the makeup that I'm wearing on my face right now a couple mm-hmm. months back. And it's my, what I wear every day. It takes me 10 to 15 minutes. I've kind of narrowed that down. If you don't have 10 to 15 minutes in the morning, I have a routine that's even shorter, which will be coming soon in an upcoming video. Teasing Stay that tuned. now. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I on an average day, 10, 15 minutes in the morning is what I like to slot out for myself so that I can take that time to myself. So how did you settle on what is your daily routine? I mean, this stuff's not cheap, but right. and you you've experimented with a lot of things. What what made you settle on the stuff that you use? Good question. I guess it just comes from like personal preference. You said I I try a lot of things. You're right. I do. Um, So the, you know, some of the products that I put on my face are things that I've seen um, put into practice on a YouTube video. And I was like, I really like that. I'll try it out for myself. Turns out I liked it. Other things are just... um, maybe almost like brand loyalty. I started wearing Clinique makeup when I was in high school. I wear Clinique makeup on my face now, so I know that it works well. Mm. So that's what I gravitate towards more in my day-to-day routine is stuff that I've either used myself for a long time or I've tried it out and liked it on recommendation of others. So this is all your personal. Like I feel like when I read some kind of magazine, 
they're getting paid to tell me that these are the products. And I'm literally, I guess I just turned 40 and I was like, I feel like I need to start wearing wrinkle cream, right? <laughs> so I'm like anti-retinol or I don't even know, right? Like what acid do I put on my face? And I feel like it's so confusing. So maybe we should do it. Here's a, here's an idea. You'll do like a cream, cream for people turning 40. I, I could do that. I'm not how turning get, 40. So no, I don't not. know. You can use my face as like how to get rid of the wrinkles on your forehead. Um, but I feel like that it's coming from you that I'm not like worrying about product placement. So, right. which is really nice. Right. This is stuff you like. And I know like in your pretty in pink video, you use this lipstick. You're like, okay, this is not available anymore. Like you put a little disclaimer on like in text, like, but here's some similar you can try. Right. Right. Um, well, I don't know. I guess when it comes to creams and stuff or like what I, where I get there, I don't know. I, when it comes to, what you were saying of like wrinkle creams and stuff. You're like, I, you're not, you're not there yet. She's I, not I do, there yet. I actually do use an anti-wrinkle eye cream because okay. that is one, some, that is one thing about myself. Again, I know no one can see me, but it's something that I'm very self-conscious about is that I have lines under my eyes and I know that it's genetic. I know it's not going to go away, mm -hmm. but if I can use something now to prevent it from getting worse, that's what I'm going to do. Um, so when it comes to sponsored stuff though, yeah, of course I'm not sponsored. I don't, have to talk about things. I'm not getting paid to talk about anything. But um, a lot of times I kind of like what I've been saying, if I see someone using it on a YouTube video, even if they have been paid to talk about something, mm -hmm. um, I still trust their opinion. And, you know, I don't see the harm in testing something out for yourself. That's kind of another point that I like to make to people like you're saying, oh, I don't wear a lot of makeup. I don't know what to do. I've heard that plenty from other people, whether it's people my age or older. Um, but what I like to tell people is that makeup is so subjective. Um, you don't have to look at me or look at someone else and say, that's how you do makeup. You have to mm -hmm. feel most comfortable in your own skin and with the products that you want to use or you feel you need to use. Um, yeah, I don't want to be the end all and be all. I just want to be able to give you tips and tricks or maybe ideas that you'd want to try for yourself. I, I never tell people you have to do your makeup like I do my makeup. Well, we got to come up with a way to give you the time to do these more regularly. And then we got to do a better job of promoting them because I think people would get hey, a lot I of I learned something from this week's video. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's how I should putting on um, bronzer. Like, not all over my face. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> there you go. And like I was just saying, makeup is very subjective. It's very personal. If that's how you want to wear it. There's okay. There are some small things that it's like uh, maybe you shouldn't do it, but there are plenty of things that it's, you can go on a scale. It's clear you enjoy it, yes. and that comes through. Um, so yeah, it's called the Beauty Beat. Yes, uh, if, and it's on YouTube, and you also post it on Cleveland.com. Right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, there is a playlist on the Cleveland.com YouTube channel called the Beauty Beat. Every time I upload a new video, it goes onto that playlist, so you can easily find it there. Um, as Chris was saying, it's not super super consistent because I do have a bunch of other things that I do here at Cleveland.com, but it's becoming more frequent um, as, as the months go by. So um, and every time I do a video, a post goes up on Cleveland.com for you guys to find as well. And they're and they're timeless. So I'm I'm glad you came by to talk about it today. And yeah, we, thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, Laura, time to wrap it up. Before we do, I should mention that we did not get Bob Higgs on the podcast to talk about the Cleveland police. He had an interesting story about the police force getting to 1,600, which is no mean feat with all the retirements they have. 
And that's where they will stay, according to the police chief. This is kind of a big deal in a city where the police department had dropped under 1,400 officers because of tough budgets. The city promised residents it would hire lots more officers if residents increased the income tax a few years ago, so it's a promise kept. Yeah, Police Chief Calvin Williams appeared before council this week to talk about it. He said it costs about $100,000 a year to put an officer on the street. So adding a couple of hundred officers is not inexpected. Uh, sorry, not inexpensive. Now that we have 1600 it'll be interesting to see whether crime goes down. He said he's really going to continue to be concentrating on efficiency in the force. So what story resonated with you today? All right, the council story. I, I just, I love hearing about what's going on at county council and um, it's really interesting, uh, the resentment that's kind of built up between the council and administration. Which is a natural product of distrust and, and, and disrespect. I like Adam's story. It's the kind of thing you're only going to learn about from Cleveland.com because we're the ones with the talented reporters like Adam. It's part watchdog, part nonsense, and part just plain interesting. Absolutely. The thing I love about that story is how long it took everyone to get on board, which is so typical in a place that talks a big game about regionalism and then rarely does anything about it. And then Cleveland takes a step back and says, oh, but we'd like to use all your hard work without contributing. That's it for this episode. Thanks to the two Janes, Adam, Courtney and Corey. And thank you, Laura. This week in the CLE is published on Thursdays. Our bonus episodes are on Saturdays and they ask a few questions that remain from the week's news. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. Laura and I will be back next week. Mm-hmm.